Today's podcast is brought to you by AssaultLimited.com. Even when you aren't saying anything, you're saying something. Let your gear say the right thing for you. That's where Assault Limited comes in. Assault Limited offers tactical versions of things you use every day. The Assault Pen is a great quality, intimidating looking pen with a pinpoint tip used for self-defense or to break glass. The Assault Spork has so many different tactical uses, we only have time to highlight a few. It's a spoon, a fork, a wrench, a carabiner, and a bottle opener. The possibilities are endless. The Assault Pencils and the Assault Straws, well, they both look pretty badass and they both tell political correctness to take a long jump off a short bridge. When you need things and you want them to be the best quality while issuing a statement to anyone else who sees, look at assaultlimited.com. Also sponsoring today's podcast is Urban Savage, U-R-B-N-S-V-G.com. The best quality apparel available. American-made t-shirts and sweatshirts that fit great with the quality that will outlast the creepy battery bunny. The Date Night Tee, which is the badass's version of the subtle embroidered logo t-shirt that so many of us grew up with. And the hats are 100% American made, not just embroidered here like so many others. Ooh, and those sweatshirts are so damn comfy. The next time you're thinking about scoring a new piece of gear, remember to check out urbnsvg.com. Last but not least, today's podcast is brought to you by A3 Body Protectant. A3 was designed when Martin noticed that Hawaiian surfers who spend their entire lives in the sun had radiant, healthy skin. After plenty of awkward questions about how seriously they take their skin care, he learned the secrets. Hawaii's best secret is now available at A3Equip.com. That's A3EQUIP.com. A3 is a truly natural cream that can be used as a skin lotion, a lip balm, a hair conditioner, honestly, anywhere you want to keep moist and healthy get yours today at a3equip.com proceed with caution all doctors to the er do these guys have any idea what they are talking about talking about talking about get squared away spiritual get squared away emotional get squared away mental Get squared away. Physical. The podcast that'll help you get squared away. All right, all right, all right. We are back live with episode 27. We have, uh, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Mike Pruitt, financial advisor here in Sun Prairie. Awesome. We kind of following up with uh, a lot of the other podcasts that we've been doing with talking to individual specialists and trying to get actionable advice for you guys, all the listeners and, and stuff like that. So I figured it'd be awesome to get a financial advisor in here and, you know, start from the basics and kind of work up from there. So how did you get into the, the financial advisor game, Mike? So it's a funny story. I actually... 15 years ago, I wasn't, I didn't go to college for finance or anything. I just was a a political science major and thought I'd end up in law school. Um, Ended up working at a company up in La Crosse and got recruited to be a financial advisor. And I, I remember when the lady asked me and I was just like, I've never, I don't know anything about finance. And she's like, we'll teach you everything. And so that was 2006. So I started my career with one of the big, uh, I won't say the name of it, but one of the bigger, well-known Wall Street firms. Um, started with them 2006, thought everything was amazing. Everybody I knew was, you know, making a ton of money. And I'm like, ah, oh, it's a cool career. And then all hell broke loose in 07, 08, 09. And I was basically just, you know, just drowning in everything that was happening, you know, trying to give advice to clients and still trying to figure out 
everything on my own. And you're kind of on an island at that point because every financial advisor is trying to protect their book and and take care of themselves and their clients. So, um, but I persevered, got through that, and then uh, ended up working uh, working for another company for a few years, and then became uh, an independent advisor here seven eight years ago and that's where i've been ever since uh so i have a company along with a couple other partners of mine um i have an office here in sun prairie and we have an office in baraboo and toma and reedsburg and yeah love it that's a great job so when you're working for one of the big one of the big wall street firms like you said is it is that basically a banking firm that then has you also on the payroll correct okay yeah and so you're kind of working do they set it up for ever like all the banking customers or is it like, how does that work? Or are you going out and getting your customers? And I know now you are. It's so it's a little bit of both. It's primarily you're getting the bank's customers, right? So the banker meets with their client, they're talking to them and and find out they change jobs. Okay. What are we going to do with the retirement plan? Or, you know, they've got all this money sitting in, in cash, which is earning obviously now nothing. So, banker introduces them to the advisor and you know the the hardest part about being in the wall street world at least in the bank programs was there was a lot of sales pressure right you're you're treated just like a car salesman you've got quotas and and numbers you have to hit and there were a lot of situations where you know we're pushed to do things that i just never felt comfortable with and felt like it just this isn't the right thing for the client but I knew that until I was off on my own, I'd, I'd never have that type of control where I could do what I felt was right for the client with no sales pressure. And so when the opportunity opened up in 2014, I, I jumped at it. And it actually is um, some friends of mine that we started our careers together in 2006. And just kind of as fate would have it, they kind of went their separate ways. I went my separate way. And then they approached me in 2014 and said, you know, get out of the corporate wall street and come independent. And it's, it's a night and day difference, you know, and not to knock any, I mean, there's a lot of great people in the banking world, you know, kind of cut your teeth, right? Like that you, you you learn a lot because somebody isn't going to be able to come in and do what you're doing right now without putting in that, that grind. No doubt. If somebody's out there and, and they want to go out and look for a financial advisor, what's something, I mean, yeah. How do you know that somebody is working for you, not working for their paycheck? Fiduciary. Fiduciary is the word that should be screamed from the mountaintops because that really is, it's odd to think, but there's actually a couple, what we call standards of care in our industry, right? Which is what, what do you have to, what level of liability or commitment are you supposed to have for the client, right? So there's a suitability standard and a fiduciary standard. And and it's, I've always used the analogy of like a doctor, right? Imagine having a doctor that can prescribe two different medicines for you, right? Medicine one is known to be the better medicine, right? But medicine two or drug number two is peddled by a pretty sales rep, you know, who takes the doctor to dinner and does different things. Well, in the suitability standard, the doctor can use whichever medicine he feels is best. It may not be the best one for the patient, right? Fiduciary world, you have to use the first one. You have to use what's best for the client at all times. So the 
if I'm telling somebody who's going to look for advisor, the first thing I want to know is ask if they're a fiduciary. And if they're not, it doesn't mean you don't use them. It just you need to understand because when they are selling you things, if they're not a fiduciary, they may not be selling you what's best for you. So again, it's it doesn't come down to one is it necessarily better than the other. We're fiduciaries, so I'm biased that fiduciaries are better. But it's also not fair to say that because there are plenty of people out there who operate as fiduciaries who have swindled a lot of people out of money. Yeah, that was my next you question. Is like, how is that regulated? So, so we're regulated through FINRA, through the SEC. Uh, in the state of Wisconsin, we have the Wisconsin Department of Financial Institutions, so DFI. And what they do is they try to provide oversight whenever things are being sold. They can come in and do audits and they, you know, we have to take a lot of notes and have good record keeping and they're going to want to, you know, they're going to come in and they're going to say, why did you make this recommendation to this client? Why did you sell this client an annuity when they're 35 years old? And generally annuities aren't appropriate for people in their 30s or 40s. So the regulator is going to want to know, you better have a damn good reason for why you just sold this. And it can't be, well, the commission's 10 grand. And so that's where it's important, again, to know like suitability versus fiduciary because you know the questions to ask, right? The other, another question I'd ask all the time, how do you get paid? You know, there's so many different ways to get paid in our business. And probably the most common model I'd say is commission-based where you sell a product, you sell a mutual fund to a client, and there's a commission that's charged to the client, usually through the investment itself. And then that's paid back to the financial advisor, right? Or the company they work with. Then there's the fee-based model. And so you want to understand, you know, how's the advisor compensated? Are they going to make commissions every time they recommend something to me? Or are they fee-based? In the fee-based world, you have a percentage that you are going to pay for the investments. And let's say it's 1% a year. The idea on it is, Everybody's interests are aligned now because for the company to make more money, we need to make more money for the client, right? So it's only dividend-based. What do you mean? So you're only getting a fee if... No. No. The fee is so there... It's still per transaction. Well, good question. So it's the fee, the 1% fee, let's just use that as an easy math example, right? Let's say you have $100,000. That 1% fee comes out every year regardless of if the, if you made money or lost money, right? But the incentive there is for the firm to continue to make money, we wanna see the account balances grow. We also know that you know firms typically in the fee-based model aren't gonna to try to take, they don't wanna to take too much risk, right? Because you blow up a bunch of client accounts, your revenue's going down with it. So again, I'm, I'm not saying one is necessarily better than the other, it's just knowing, right? So. Those two big things, I want to know if you're a fiduciary. If not, no big deal, but I want to know that as a consumer. And I want to know how you're compensated. Because if you're not a fiduciary and you're in the commission world, there's going to be this part in my mind every time you make a recommendation to me. Yep. That you're going to say, well, does he really believe in that stock or is it? Is he trying to make a sales goal, right? Is he trying to hit a, a bogey that he's going to, or is he, he's going to buy a hot tub? He's making these recommendations now, right? 
in the fee-based world, you don't necessarily have that. Um, you're never going to have a completely conflict-free world. Never. Anything, right? Never. So, yeah, did that answer your question? Yeah. Did it make more sense? Yeah. yeah. I'm just wondering if there's extra protections for the client. But in this case, I mean, there's not. There's not really. There's not, but the fiduciary standard does provide a higher level of protection's a tough word to say because nothing's nothing says nothing's that guaranteed. you you're going to lose money or or win, right? It's not right. guaranteed. What the fiduciary standard does though is it gives the client a lot more protection in a in a courtroom, right? Because the suitability standard all that person has to do is argue that the day I made the recommendation for you, it was okay. It's like the doctor and the medicine, right? Two drugs. Hey, one is better than the other, but this one's not going to hurt you. It's not going to kill you, right? So that fiduciary world, again, that's where, you know, a judge, if something bad happens, a judge is going to say, you need to prove to us why your recommendation was the absolute best choice for them instead of option B or C. And if you can't prove it, then you're going down. So that's probably the biggest difference in protection. Is that is that something most most uh, companies would have like right on their front page of their website when you're looking awesome around, question. or is there is there a central like searchable database of fiduciaries or something? Yeah. So number one, you should be able to ask, and and anybody who is a fiduciary is going to have you sign paperwork. Like I want people to know I'm a fiduciary, right? So I, we have it loud and proud on a piece of paper right there that the client signs. So when they ask the question, are you a fiduciary? And the answer is, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, prove it. And the proof is typically in a form ADV or some type of form. So they can't present very quickly that paperwork. That's what I'm running from. Because now you're telling me you are. You're clearly not. I can't trust you at all. So they come right out and they say, no, we're not a fiduciary, but we follow the suitability standard, but we always have your best interest. Okay. Yeah, I'm then you just that. know. No, no, you know, but now you know, right? Yep. You smart consumer. So now, as far as when pers- coming from a personal finance standpoint, some of us took finance classes, some of us took personal finance classes in high school, and we can't remember a damn thing from yep. then. Um, and a lot of that shit changes, right? Yeah. Like when we get really down to the bare bones of things, is there like specific percentages that people should have for goals as far as like how much of their income is being saved, how much of their income is being spent on bills, how much of their income is being spent as far as, you know, extra shit, I guess. Yeah. Is so there variable like your age, age and stage of your life? Also? And so, yeah, that's, I have oh, a, that's, so that's my next question is that it, it's, it's seasonal, right? Yeah. Since I'm like 90 and he's 20. Right. <laughs> I mean, I look I'm 20 and you middle. look 90, but whatever. Uh, no. it, it does vary, though. And it's it it all comes down to, it, like, how disciplined do you want to be, right? Like, I had a client years and years ago. And this dude lived by one-third, one-third, one-third. And it was one-third of his money always went into savings or investments. One-third was what his... Uh, home expenses and and living was, and one third was the discretionary. And he never worked a job where he made a ton of money. He just saved right. And he saved young. So when this cat was like 50 years old, he already had probably $2 million. And it's like, if I could, if I could push one thing and got the education thing you talk about that, it drives me nuts. Cause 
you know, kids will learn Pythagorean theorem and all this type of stuff that they're probably never going to use. But you ask them what a what's the difference between a stock and a bond, and they're going to look at you like you have two heads, right? Like we don't teach that stuff. So you could go with that one third, one third, one third. That's pretty. That's pretty damn hard. You know, think about when you're 20 years old, right? So I try to be a realist about some of this stuff, and I'll say, look, if if you can. If you can do 10 to 15 to 20%, right? 10 is the minimum, 15 is a happy average. If you can do 20, you're knocking it out of the park. And if you can do that from a young age, that's that's the key because it's so hard to go back, right? And so if you, if you could say 15, say 15 to 20% of your income out of the gate, and always pay yourself first. You know, don't make excuses. Always pay yourself first and get that money invested. Now time takes over, right? Um, so then if you think about the remaining 80%, I, I think that's where you could kind of, you know, there's some mathematical formulas out there that the banks are gonna look at, you know, to say like, you really shouldn't have more than, you know, 30 to 40% of the rest of your income, you know, committed to, that, that really is it for debt, right? So say 30 to 40% committed to, your vehicle loan, if you've got that, your mortgage. And now that leaves you roughly, what, 25 to 35% of the remaining, and that's your discretionary, right? Um, and that's one thing that, you know, people are always talking about budgets and stuff. And sometimes I think the reason budgets, people hate the word, right? Nobody likes to budget. But sometimes I think the reason why is because you get so, we get so detailed and granular on it, whereas it's like, you know, like if you're if you're doing a nutrition program, right, like you can get so deep down into the weeds on on everything or you can just say, OK, I'm going to have roughly a third of my diet is protein, a third carbs, third fat, whatever it is. Right. Finance is the same way. You can set your budget up where it's like, OK, 20 percent is savings, 40 percent is my home and my vehicle and the remaining 40 percent is discretionary. And as long as you can balance that, you don't need to get down into the weeds and say, like, I'm only allowed to spend seven dollars a week at Starbucks. And I think that's where people get lost in budgets. So and I think I think one thing with that to come in is I'm always very much on the actionable steps. Right. Yep. And actionable steps in this one. I know for me personally, if I have to take my paycheck and put 20 yeah. percent away, more often than not, I'm not going to fucking do it. Correct. So. Yep. That shit needs to be set up ahead of time. For sure. However you want to set it up. If you're going to set it up as far as all of it going into a 401k, which will roll into my next question, yep. or if you're going to have it where your office, I mean, if you work and you get a paycheck, you can have your HR set it up so that it gets deposited into separate accounts. Definitely. You could have a percentage of it go into a separate account that is yep. only for savings if you don't have a 401k or if you only want to put in so much into your 401k. Yeah. So rolling into my next question, 401k, if you work somewhere, most places have them, right? If you don't, we'll move into the IRA next. But yeah. as far as putting into a company 401k, let's say your company only matches, you know, up to 5%, yep. right? Five, maybe they match 2% on 5%. Yeah. Does it make any sense to then have a separate investment vehicle like an IRA after that? Or should you just dump it all into that same 401k? So... 
And I guess explain to us the difference between, yeah. I, I know the difference, but not everybody that's listening is going to know the difference between a 401k and an IRA. So the, the biggest difference is the 401k is going to be sponsored by the company and it's going to have limited investment options. Typically, some 401ks will give you the ability to do stocks on your own and whatnot. But in general, company sponsored, limited investment options, super inexpensive. They keep the fees super low, but you get what you pay for in life. And in the 401k world, you don't get a lot of assistance. That's just how part of the reason why it's so inexpensive, right? IRA is a little bit different story. IRA is going to be typically, you know, pretty much a la carte. You can invest in anything you want to. It's not limited investment options. It might cost a little more depending on what you're buying. Um, but the same concept applies from a tax standpoint. When you're talking like a traditional 401k or traditional IRA. Right. So, and then after this, let's, exp I guess, or maybe right now explain yeah. traditional versus, versus Roth. Roth. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and when we talk like traditional, we're talking pre-tax and that could be a 401k, could be an IRA. So money goes in, you, it's, you get a tax deduction for it. It grows tax deferred. When you take it out, you're paying the taxes. So the, the you know a common joke or common saying in our industry is that the the 401k and the IRA is the best retirement program the government ever created for itself because they're going to give you a tax break on $1 right now and then 30 years down the road they're going to tax you on $5 on the way out it's genius right now flip that to the Roth which is just the opposite you're going in with after tax dollars still get the tax deferred growth but when it comes back out now it's tax-free. So to go back to your original question, that's what I want to see people doing. If, you're, if your 401k offers a Roth, feel free to use that. You're going to save some money. You'll be fine. Um, if it doesn't offer, it's just your traditional 401k plan, no Roth 401k, that's a great option is to do always do your match, right? Always put in the minimum to get that match, yep. right? So in your example, companies putting 5% in, Put in another five, right? Put in your five, get their five. Then go look outside and maybe you do a Roth IRA, you know, and, and this is one of those, you know, probably from a regulatory standpoint where I need to just throw that caveat out there, right? Like everybody's different. That formula might not work if you're not qualified to put money into a Roth IRA because you make too much money, right? So it's definitely one of those things where it's why you find a financial advisor, right? It's it's to ask those types of questions or learn it on your own. I mean, there's a lot of this stuff people can do on their own. It's just, do you want to do it, right? Do you want to educate yourself or do you just want to pay somebody to do it? I mean, I can change the brakes on my vehicle. Doesn't mean I want to do that, right? Do I want to spend a Saturday afternoon breaking my knuckles doing that? I'll pay somebody. So, yeah. Cool. And then as far as all of those things, another another hack that I know I personally use is escalations or yep. increases in scheduled increases, right? Yep. So like most people are gonna get some sort of a raise every year. Yep. Um, so what I do is I have it, so mine's just set up. Every year it increases, auto increases, auto increases yep. in percent. And then I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to like, oh yeah, let's log in and change it. Like right. I don't have to do anything. It automatically does it. Yeah. No. And that's, you won't, I have right? to, I have to, like I always tell people, I don't not eat the cookies because the cookies are in front of me and I don't want the cookies. I don't buy the fucking cookies. Yeah, I just like I cookies. just don't have them in the house yeah. and then I don't have the problem. Yep. I'm, I don't have the self-control to do this type of shit. Yep. 
ahead of, or when in the moment. I do it ahead of time when I'm planning, and that's where habits come in. So important. Well, so uh, you know, going back to the the action item when it comes to the 401k, another thing is people will always ask me like, how much should I st- how much should I put into it? Right? right. Put in more than you can afford to do because you're gonna you'll if if it makes you uncomfortable, you'll pull it back. It's very rare to see somebody who says, I'm going to start with five and if, you know, then I'll see how my bills look and then I'll go change it to 10 next year. No, you won't. Start it at 10 now. And then if it hurts too much on the monthly bills, then decrease it. But again, it's it's tricking your mind. It's There's a, so much to behavioral finance that, I mean, you could literally create an entire podcast, there probably is, for years of conversation around all the little hacks you have to do in your mind for money. Yeah, and it's hundred percent. It's all behavioral. Mm-hmm. It is. It is all behavioral. Yep. So as far as if somebody's looking at where they want to retire, right? Because you kind of you when you want when you're going to set up a goal, you want to look at where you where you want to be. Yep. Um, there's all different trains of thought here. What do you think is a safe? annual percentage to kind of gauge to for pull, someone to for, to for someone your, no 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 for someone to to say I'm putting this much in it's going to grow at this percentage yep. I want to have this much when I want to retire at yeah. 65 what do you yeah. think a, a healthy percentage is for that do you mean like growth like, APR oh, like right yeah it's such a good question um, or APY I guess you could I'd say 8% like to me I I've, I've always just ran calculations off of 8% and it's hard because the last 15 years, right. we've been able to get 12% by throwing darts in the dark. But that that's not normal, and it shouldn't be planned that way. So yeah. I'd use 8% as, as a calculation. So if I know, okay, I make an X, I'm going to save 10% a year. One other cool thing, like I, it's called the rule of 72, right? So the rule of 72 says you take whatever that interest rate is, divide that into 72, that's how many years it's gonna take to double that money, okay? So this is another one of those where it's like, if I could teach kids anything about money, it's the idea of compounding and the time value of money and the way all this works is, if you think about somebody who's 20 years old, right? They throw five grand one year, throw five grand into an IRA, 8% of your growth. 72 divided by eight, nine, Every nine years, that money doubles, right? So we go from five to 10 to 20 to 40 to 80 to 160. And then when they're 65 years old, the last by that time, yeah, that's 160 at that point, right? Now you take this same person and they don't, they wait 10 years before they start investing because they just couldn't afford it in their 20s and now they can do it in their 30s. That money gets to 80. It doesn't get to the 160, right? So just knowing that, knowing some of these basics of rates of return to know that, okay, if I put my money in a bank account that's paying me half a percent a year, how long does it take me to double the money? Forever. Forever. Like you, you're dead. Yeah. It's not happening. Yeah. Right. So that's why you gotta, you gotta invest. Yeah. Right. And that's one of the biggest things I know I, I did uh Tony Robbins 
Mm-hmm. The game, the money, the game, yep. whatever that book is. Yep. And yeah, it was one of the biggest things he preaches in there is like the compounding interest. Like people do not understand what compounding really, really does. Like yep. you just download a financial calculator on your fucking iPhone or your Android yeah. and just play with the numbers. Like, oh, 20 grand right now at 8% for yeah. 30 years. Like, holy shit. Yeah. That's a big number. Now, now imagine each one of those as like a bucket, right? So in year one, when you're 20 years old, you dump five grand into that bucket. And then that that bucket starts to grow on its own, right? Then the next year, there's another five grand in another bucket. So it's like all of a sudden, you got all of these buckets every single year that have had time value of money working for them. And by the time, that's how you retire, right? Like people think the way you, you know, the way you get rich is you go out and you, you know, you pay to go to college and go to Harvard and then get a job as a lawyer making $200,000 a year. And it's like, I've seen more people who are, financially shit shows that make a ton of money and the ones who end up being like the multi-millionaire clients are the ones who both had humble jobs making $75,000 a year. They just made sure to pay themselves first every year. Just consistently saving. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, What do you think? I guess you probably do sell life insurance. I, I do, but I don't. It's not anything I specialize yeah. in. Okay. It's not that I'm a, yeah. against it. I just don't specialize much in it. Um, I just I I have a shit story about going in and talking to somebody about finances, sure. and the first thing they said was, "Oh, we can't we can't do anything with you until you buy some life insurance." Yeah. yeah. I'm like, "Oh, really?" That's a con. They also tried to hire me, and that was <laughs> like, "Are you sure you don't want to come work?" Here? Yeah, this is a shit show. Yeah, Big gonna, company. If I mention the name, y'all had heard of it I before. Think I, I think uh, I, I know. know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, think I can, I can uh, picture that. Yeah. Uh, so, no, okay. and, and, and for me, again, it's there's a lot of different scenarios out there. But in general, I've always believed like term policies are the way to go, especially when you're younger. Yeah. You know, people will pitch life insurance as I've heard it and it makes me want to punch them in the face. You know, the well, this is, you know, this is like a Roth IRA on steroids. So you can just put all this money away. And it's like, I'm a purist. I like to keep my life insurance, my life insurance, my retirement, my retirement. I don't need the two of them intermingling and having this weird hybrid situation. The only time I will say that it makes sense is if you have somebody that has a net worth large enough that their death tax is going to get taxed, then it makes sense because life insurance payouts are not taxed. Correct. So if you bought a cash out life insurance policy and you needed to give your kids $20 million, they would be taxed on that $20 million because what's the threshold? Eight, five? Eight. I don't even know what it is right There's now. There's a threshold for get for, for yeah. death tax after five million or after the, eight million. I'm sure changes, it's gonna go lower to yeah, pay for all the shit all that the we've that we all the money the country has given out for the last year. It's yep. gonna have to go lower to pay for that. But um let's talk credit. Okay. Explain credit for the the average simple guy. Well, I guess the way I'd explain it is you know, it's your ability to to take on debt. It's your ability to borrow money, right? And and so you want to, you know, when you're younger, you're trying to, you want to have healthy credit, right? It's, there's good debt and there's bad debt. And that's the thing that I think we get too caught up in sometimes, you know, like, especially right now with rates as low as they are, right? You know, you can make a good argument that, hey, buying a home is a good investment. That's okay to take on that debt, right? <clears throat> You go and you get credit, you get a credit, you know, like a MasterCard or Visa credit card and you are not responsible with it. Welcome to hell. And that's, I mean, so many kids get into it, you know, I don't know how it was in your guys' colleges, but 
I mean, it, the first day you walked into the campus, every every place was selling credit cards, right? Jesus. Easy money. Sign here. Sign here. And and so free T-shirt, free T-shirt, free, free CD free box. Yeah. You know, like yeah. Um, but yeah, I credit, there's so much to it, right? You know, so your ability to borrow debt, you know, you're going to get a credit report over time, you know, that gets built up and changes. The number changes based on your ability to repay, your your history of repayment. So I hate seeing people use credit cards. I And, I, you know, I could probably have a million arguments with people about it because there'd be a lot of people who'd say, well, yeah, but I pay my balance off every month and I just use it for the points. And again, it's your cookie analogy, right? It's like, if you don't have it and, and it, you, you kind of need to have one most likely. And if you're trying to build credit, it's important to have, but I've always, especially if somebody's in a lot of, you know, uh, they're in financial ruins because they brought on credit card debt and it's so easy to do. You don't want to close the credit card necessarily, right? Because that actually will impact your credit score. So again, life hack, right? Mind tricks, freeze it. And I'm not talking like a credit freeze. It's a good idea. Like legit freeze the credit cards in a Ziploc baggie with water and throw it in your freezer. It sounds so stupid. But if you keep that in your wallet and you say, I'm never going to use this, I can't use it. You're going to use it, right? You're going to eat the cookie because it's sitting right there. Freeze the thing. And now you're going to feel like such a jackass when you want to buy something because you're sitting at your counter like a crackhead chiseling ice <laughs> to get at your credit card. That's literal, yeah. You know, it is. But so all of a sudden you're thinking about it and you're like, all right, man, maybe I don't need this new pair of shoes that bad that I'm sitting here chiseling ice to, yeah. to get it. Um, but if you are disciplined... Yeah. Now, let's say you have an Amex that you know you're getting Delta points for. Yeah. I mean, if you're disciplined at it, and you got all your ba- bills auto paying off that card, and then you pay those bills off every month. Yeah. By end of the year, you're paying for your vacation for sure. As long as you're disciplined, that's the key, and that, that's where I think people need to know who you they keep are. Keep that card out of your wallet. Yeah. It's half the battle, you know. Yep. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's important. You want to have credit, right? Like if you want to buy a house someday. And so the easiest way to start getting credit is you have a credit, credit card, card yeah. right? But it is, it's, and what scares me is when I think about like, you know, when we were growing up, cash is king, right? And we saw our parents using cash and credit cards weren't as predominant, you know, now monopoly game is credit card monopoly, right? Really? They don't even have straight cash yeah, anymore in these yeah. games. Oh my God, that's <laughs> awful. These kids are being ingrained at, you know, six yeah. years old playing Monopoly. That's awful. So so what? having a credit card, what else can you do to build your credit? Let's say you just have average, you know, 550 whatever credit. You're not a, you know, you're not a credit baller. Yeah. I mean, the, the number one thing is having the right, having the right balance of, of credit cards, healthy payments. So one of the nice things now is because of your ability to, to get credit reports now for free, people can go online and the software now that they have, I I just got one for a client the other day. When you get the report back of your credit, it literally like shows you a chart. It breaks down exactly because I believe there's five components to a credit score. It breaks down each of those and shows you how, which one's impacting your score the most. Yeah. And then it gives you things that you can do. So to me, the number one thing I would tell people is go get your credit report. 
go get, you know, and there, there's a lot of, you, you want to basically find the one that's sponsored by the government, right? Credit Karma. I don't know if that one is, is the right one, but Credit Karma works really well. I use, I use Credit Karma. It works yeah. extremely well. I there's mean, tons you, of them out you, there. It's great. It'll, and it'll tell you, like, your credit your credit report recently changed. And, yep. like, that that caught me the other day because I didn't know that my wife used the Kohl's credit card that we've had for fucking 10 years right. and never used. Yeah. But apparently you have to use it to get their percentage off now. Sure. And I didn't know she used it. And I got a thing. It's like balance changed on Kohl's. And I'm yep. like, Somebody hacked my Kohl's card, right? Yeah. And I'm like, damn it. And then I asked her, she's like, oh, yeah, I used it and paid it off already. So one of the other things, too, is, is like crack. Kohl's is like crack. 30% off everything. Oh, Scratch off the fucking the Kohl's, thing. Kohl's cash and everything else. Yeah, you buy some, they give you more cash back. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like this yeah. endless it's loop like of Kohl's hell. It drives me nuts. It's like, I'd rather go to Home Depot so I get my military discount. Oh, just give me know, my yeah. 10% that way. Instead, Menards is like, well, here's 11, but it's going to come in the form of a coupon that you got to spend oh, in our I know. store again. You Three know, weeks later. Just a piece of paper for yeah. 64 cents. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, so, um, but no, the other thing I would say on that is if, if possible, when you're getting it, don't necessarily get the one that has, you want to make sure your score is on there, right? Because some of these credit reports will just be your, your, the report it won't actually give you your score. The nice thing is I think transparency has changed so much over the last couple of years that now even the banks have software that has access to it. So I know like one of the credit unions in town, you log into your account, your credit score is listed. It's it's live all the time. Yeah. So you can see it, um, which is nice. When do you think bankruptcy makes sense for somebody? Oh, boy. I know this is kind of a 74 step question, but. It's the nuclear option, right? There's nothing left. You, you have no choices at this point. It's done. Um, I would avoid it at all costs because the the long term effects of it are are crushing. And it is. There are some people that it just can't be avoided. Um, What's the consequence? Was seven years of yeah, bad credit or it's how are they? seven to ten of like no credit? It's yeah. not even bad credit. Like bad credit, from what I gather, is even moderately better than no sure. credit. Well, and it, it depends on the. You know the the type of bankruptcy. It, it depends on a lot of things, but in general, what I've seen when people go through it is it basically makes it impossible for them to really get credit for at least anywhere from seven to ten years, right? So think about think about all that the home, right? The home purchase is probably the biggest one. You file bankruptcy unless you come into a ton of cash. You're not getting a mortgage. You're going to rent, and if you're renting. You know, it's it's okay for some mercy, people, yeah. but it's it's not financially savvy. It's not a good way to do it. So it's just la absolute last option. It's nuclear. I mean, what I would say is, you talk to a financial advisor, and you just got to be open. You got to sit down with somebody. And I've had it. I've had tough conversations with people where I'm like, it'd be easy for me to tell you, just yeah, give me a hundred bucks a month, and we'll put a new one into a Roth IRA. But financially, that does not make sense for you, right? So there are times where you'd say like, well, I have all this debt. Okay, maybe it's time to shut down the retirement account savings for a little while and just focus on paying the debt off. And you're just going to have to own that. That, that you, Whatever happened in your life, it is what it is. And it's going to impact you 50 years down the road because you couldn't save as much for retirement. But... And it's a percentage game. If you're making 8% on your money, but you're getting charged 25% on the debt, yeah. you're going backwards right. by 17%. 
Yeah, that math is right. Yeah. There you go, Asian math, Martin. <laughs> well, and I Ask think that a, question later. a lot of times people just, they don't know where to turn, right? So they feel like bankruptcy is their only option when the reality is maybe they just need to sit down with somebody who can help them come up with a plan, right? And give them, give them a way out. And a lot of times there is a way out. So yeah, a lot of times I think you can negotiate with the creditors. Yeah. I think there's a lot of businesses that are trying to charge you to do that. Correct. But I think uh, you can actually do it yourself. Yeah. That was going to be my other piece of advice is watch out for the ones who are out there trying to help you get everything fixed. Oh, my yeah. God. My father-in-law got hatched by those because he's self he's self-employed and didn't pay taxes for God knows how long. And he got the, oh, we'll help. We'll take care of the yeah. government taxes. We'll get it knocked down. Right. We'll get it knocked. Just send us 10 grand yeah. and we'll get like, yeah. wait, hold on. What? You did what? You <laughs> sent them $10,000? Those infomercials, right, where the guy's Ooh. like, I owed the IRS $157,000 and this company helped me settle for yeah. 27 cents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. yeah. Nothing's okay, for free. Did you pay them? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, 10 G's. Nothing's for free. Yep. What do you think about cryptocurrency? I was going to ask that. That's a good one. Um, I, I like it. I think it's it's definitely, I mean, it certainly seems like it has to be part of the future. I don't know how much of the future. I'm more excited about the blockchain technology that crypto rides on, basically. Yeah. Uh, that, to me, has a lot more utility than than crypto itself as a currency. The thing that always scares me the most about crypto is the government can do what the government wants to do. And if all of a sudden they just one day decide this is too much of a threat, they can change the game just like that and there goes that specific crypto. You have, I've, I've got a moderate cool. amount of Ripple of, really? of XRP right now yep. and that is exactly what happened is, yes. is Ripple, Ripple built XRP and for People that don't understand cryptocurrencies, the blockchain that he mentioned is basically decentralization of a managing of anything. It's, it decentralizes the computer structure that that the cryptocurrency rides on. Well, that also slows down large transactions. So if you want to buy a fifty thousand dollar car in Bitcoin, it legitimately could sw it could swing a thousand dollars in the time that it takes for that transaction to go through. So what Ripple did is Ripple came in and they and they they centralize the decentralization of cryptocurrency and they made their own currency called XRP and XRP was getting was taking off especially in Korea and a little bit in China and India and it, and it was blowing up and it was being used by MoneyGram I believe and a few other and so I saw that and I jumped in and threw some money in it and legitimately within five days yeah. the government was like the SEC is, is indicting or filing a lawsuit against Ripple because XRP basically they said that it's should be considered a security. Basically what it is, is they have somebody to go after right. with XRP. They can say, we are filing against Ripple. If they want to file against Bitcoin, there's, there's no, right. there's there is no, no one to file against. Yeah. There's no company. There's nothing. Yep. So yeah, I've, I've been watching that. Right. Yeah. And it's still up. Like it's way up from where I, from where I was at, but if I wanted to sell it, I have zero ability to get my cash out right now. So th that's the other thing that whenever people are asking me about crypto, it's like, there's a lot of issues out there right now with the taxability of this stuff, you know, and I, that's coming. It's it's only a matter of time. So somebody who bought Bitcoin for, you know, $5,000 and they turn around now and what's it, 50000 now? 50, yeah. Right? So now they want to turn around and sell it. Okay, what are the tax consequences of it? And you can literally, 
you could ask 10 people that question and you'd have probably 10 different answers and not one of them is probably accurate. And the reality is this stuff is just, it's, global. it's so new. So they can't really put a lasso on that yet. You can't, right? But that's the problem because theoretically, and, and this is the question, right? Of is it a currency? Is it a security? How are we taxing this? The government is going to figure that out, right? So they're, they have to come in and say like, well, you, you started with 5,000 and now you have $50,000. In any other transaction in the United States, that's a taxable event. Yeah, even even okay. a even a security investment. Even if yeah. you were even if you were buying Japanese yen, going to Canadian, and then coming back to American, yeah. and you made that amount of money, it's, it's going to be taxed totally different. It's a currency trade. Than, yeah, it's a it's a currency trade. Now, where the intelligent investor slash user would come in here is they would then say, I have this Bitcoin wallet worth $50,000, but I don't necessarily want to cash that $50,000 in Bitcoin in and put it in my bank account because that's how I'm going to get fucked. I'm going to use that Bitcoin to buy things for my life and non-traceable things for my life. I'm going to buy all of my toiletries and all this and that, and I'm going to, you know, by vacations and all this shit in Bitcoin, yep. because then that that keeps your money in a, in a cryptocurrency state, but also gets you the things. Because right, like money is right. just a fucking way to get things. Like it, that's all money is. Now, what I, where I would push back onto that a little bit is why would you want? My buddy and I argued about this the other day. Why would you want to buy something with Bitcoin? Why would you want to do that? If, for example. Somebody with their $5,000 Bitcoin a couple years years ago bought a $5,000 diamond for their wife. How much is that $5,000 diamond right now worth? Five Gs, $5,000 diamond. But the jeweler that got the $5,000 Bitcoin now has a $50,000 Bitcoin. So to me, I, I'm it's the thing I keep questioning is, it's the utility of the crypto itself. Why would I want to spend that crypt? I know that's not going to happen with a dollar, right? right. I pay a thousand dollars for something that, thought, other than inflation and with purchasing power, right? right. Um, we know that that thousand bucks is a thousand bucks in a year, two from now. So that's always the question I ask the crypto people: is why would I want to use my Bitcoin to buy this vehicle, knowing that I'm trading in appreciating asset? for a depreciating asset. Or vice versa though, depending on the market. Sure, absolutely. Maybe well, you're so, unloading it and crypto drops back down. That's, yeah. But again, this this all kind of ties back into the conversation about like, the government's going to figure this out. Right. They, they're not going to allow it to go because at some point they're gonna look at it and say, you can have it in a wallet and you can, you can use it, but once you turned it from out of Bitcoin status, whether it's out of your possession, or yeah. you've converted it back to cash, they're gonna have to come in and do something. I, I, they're, That's they're, why it's attractive because right now it's unregulated. Correct. So, yeah. you know, for now, it, for it now. serves its purpose and probably is a good thing to have as and, and part one, of a portfolio. And one, right? of the argu- one of the arguments against, against what you said is part of the reason that a Bitcoin is worth $50,000 today is because of the use of Bitcoins because sure. it's, it's the scarcity. Yeah. So if you're just collecting yep. and not using and everybody just collects and doesn't right. use, price that price does not go up. Right. right. So it makes total sense. The use, and that's what, 
I, I got into is. this. I got into this Thanksgiving <laughs> drunk around a campfire oh. yelling argument against oh, my Lord. uncle because he's like, he's like, it's not a currency. It's an investment. I'm like, it's not a currency or an investment. It's a technology. Yeah. Like it is a technology that allows me to send this person money without having to use Visa right. or Chase Bank. Right. It is, And that's what it is. It yeah. is a structural technology and but it has to be used. So yeah. no, my, my reason for using it to buy your, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever was because you have that $50,000 and y- the other option is transferring that back to cash right. and then using that cash. But if that's you not your other option, if just sitting on that is the, you know, your option A, option B, yep. then that's right. much more intelligent. Yep. I think there's a lot left to learn. Oh, there's a ton. In crypto, but it's, um, I think it's going to be around. Yeah, it's just something we got to figure out. Um, the only issue is that that market never shuts down. So if you're a person that you know has a day trader mentality, you're going to drive yourself nuts. Yeah, because that market is. I day traded for a while. That was fun. <laughs> yeah, at least the market shuts down at the end of the day. As right. Shit. Now yeah. imagine that stress, and now it's like twenty four seven, three sixty five. I'm not going to use. I'm not going to use solid numbers, but let's say I had an account that started at ten, at a thousand dollars. Okay, we'll say I had an account that started at $1,000 and I got it to a point and you can fucking Google this if you want to. I got it to a point that you can legally day trade. Okay. Okay. Got it to a point you can legally day trade. And then I tripled that account. Jeez. Really good. Yeah. It was doing really, really well. I sent a buy. <laughs> I remember that story. Yeah. Hey, you remember this story. In, yeah. And then September hit. Eesh. And I don't know if anybody knows what September is like for the market. I didn't know what September yeah. was like for the market. And then I chased the dragon oh, yeah. all the way back oh, down yeah. to my initial account. Yep. And I was like, whoo, I'm done. Yeah. I am, I'm out. I tapped out. I deleted all the fucking apps. I got a two <laughs> iMac monitor like set up. Like, you feel like a gambler. Dude, I was on fire. Yeah. And I was sending screenshots to friends because we were yeah. all trading. And then they were like, oh my God. I'm like, yep, I was done by 930 this Dude, morning. I mean, it's Reddit, right? The the whole Reddit craze yeah. right now. Dude, with the, and the then stop and all these other ones. And it's like yeah. three it's, weeks or four weeks of just dog shit trades yeah. and I was back to square one. And it's yeah. so easy to have that happen too. Just one yeah. bad week and e- emotion takes over. That's exactly say, what yeah. it was you know? because every one of those trades, if I would have just stayed in them, that's it. I would have been back where yep. I was at. That's it. I would have yeah. been fine. Most people just every don't single have the, one of they don't them. Have the balls to hang in. They yeah. just they see it as this thing's going down. It's not coming back up. I was also oh, trading on yeah. four to one margin, so you can't necessarily <laughs> hang in on those all the yeah. time. Yeah, little margin calls here and there. Yeah, and there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and to kind of you know wrap up the crypto thing, that that for me is the hardest part right now. Is I am in a highly regulated industry, right? So anything I do has to be regulated. So I don't even have the ability to do crypto for clients. If I did it for myself, I have to disclose it to compliance, which they typically frown upon, things like that. Um, And to your point, Martin, it's so new that the technology is like we're we we don't know anything about this yet. We're getting there. I, you, I mean, and everybody's totally different on what they know on this stuff. It's it's unreal. There's just a lot of energy going into development of this technology. For so, sure. You know, at some point it's going to evolve. Yeah. What yeah. I always wonder if it ends up being more like, will crypto always just kind of be this side currency, not currency. <laughs> 
mean, it is. It is, you know it is a currency, but it's definitely not just an investment. It, that was his argument. Words, it, was, it was just an investment. It's, it's, it's a global that, avenue. Yeah, but it is. I guess what I'm getting at is, will crypto end up being the thing that elevates blockchain and blockchain becomes the technology that grows out of crypto that changes the world? Yeah. And crypto will always just kind of be the redheaded stepchild off to the side. People use it here and there. and it, But or will crypto change the world? Yeah. By, by crypto itself. I think we you know also I mean? have this really, like we have these blinders on, right? Because we're in America and it's fucking amazing. And we have phones and we have banks and we have ATMs and yeah. we have credit cards and it's it's fucking glorious. Yeah. But in a lot of the rest of the world, you're legitimately like, I'm trading, you know, rupees at a market right. where that's where crypto itself really comes in handy yeah. is because you can't just go to the bank and get money. You probably have a bank account, right. you know, or, or maybe you have savings or, or whatever. But if you are, have the ability to send five dollars at the market to, you know, from right. your phone, because everybody's got a fucking phone. Right. They're not even putting right. hard lines in most of these countries right. anymore. It's all just going digital. And you got crazy Elon Musk with his sat net or net, yep. whatever that is, the fucking satellites all over the world that are going to crash us into something. Um, <laughs> that's where I think crypto really is the strongest is where it, it fills makes in sense. for a lack of a consistent currency. Yep. Yep. Okay, crypto done. Crypto Hatched. done. The only question I have with crypto is okay. do I turn my notifications off or not? Because I can't help myself. Uh, do you, I have them on. How many notifications do you have on? It just I, goes, by the time that. I wake turn up in the morning, all it's notifications. Like, I, the only notifications <laughs> you need are text, emails, and calls. Everything else you have to go into. I do not need notifications for any social media. I do I know, not need just, notifications for Yahoo Finance. I do not need any notifications for that I shit. I just like to look over my... Okay. Oh my God, you got one of those yep. fucking doorbells too, don't you? Oh, the Does ringer? it go to your phone? Uh, I got a camera. Yeah, but does it that ding on your phone? Me. Yeah, so every time a car passes, it's yeah. like... Yeah, yeah. Ding, ding, ding. I'm sitting here trying ding, to talk ding, ding. to people and it's like, bing, bing, <laughs> ba ding. Like, what the f you don't fucking need to know when the, somebody <laughs> drove by your house. <laughs> Oh my God! You're like squirrel. I have a very squirrel. high sense of security. Squirrel, squirrel. I just, you know, just say that's, that's any movement that's detected. Security. I'm sorry. Security. <laughs> you're gonna be so into that. Somebody's gonna right yep. in the side of your dome. Um, are you worried about inflation? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think it's scary as shit for yeah. for and be, and the problem is too is I think that the way that the the way that the Feds track inflation mm -hmm. is so past that. They'll say there's you know this much infl inflation, yeah. but you're like wait no because right. everything I want to do is costing drastically more, right. even though my bread and my eggs are cheap and my phone and my phone got cheaper and my telephone got cheaper. Yep, that's this much of what yeah. I fucking do. To, to me, the scariest part about inflation is you know the the Fed's mandate now at this point you know they're they're going to peg their rate to inflation, right? And what we've known from past moves is that an overaggressive Fed, by taking the rate up too quick, can cause a recession, right? Yep. We've had multiple history scenarios where that occurred. So my biggest fear is inflation gets out of control, Fed brings the rates up way too quickly, 
because they don't have a choice at this point. They've kind of boxed themselves into a corner. And I, I will say, I feel like they, they have done a, a really good job managing rates. I didn't like the fact that they waited so long to start raising them years ago, but they've done okay. Um, so we get inflation that goes crazy, and then we end up getting a Fed that gets too aggressive. We end up seeing a recession, and now you've got that combination, right, of stagflation, to right? negative economic growth and high inflation, and that's stagflation. Yeah. That scares the shit out of me. So my hope is that you know the Fed can the Fed can navigate us through this over the next couple of years. And it's hard because, you know, the government keeps saying transitory, right? That's the word right now is, well, this inflation is transitory. And it's, you could literally listen to one conference call after another and one company's, you know, chief marketing or, you know, chief, whatever they want to call it, chief investment offer officer is going to say this inflation looks transitory, blah, blah, blah. And then the very next call I'll listen to will be another guy and he'll say, we're up shit creek because of inflation. So it's like there's no general consensus. But I tell my clients all the time, there's two things that, that worry me. Right now, inflation. But what always worries me is the black swan event, right? And so are you familiar with the concept? Peter Thiel? Yeah. I think so, that's a Peter Thiel concept, the black swan event. Well, it's a book by Nassim Taleb. Oh, it is a Nassim yeah. Taleb. Okay. Yep. 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 Um, but right. So the, the concept is, is very simple, right? It's the idea that nobody knew swans could be black. By definition, swans were white. So if you saw a black swan, it couldn't be a swan until somebody smart enough was like, no, there's black swans, right? So it's the event that nobody sees coming and you can't prepare for. Right. It's it's the guy that owns owns a company that puts locks on the doors of cockpits and couldn't get anybody before September 11th to buy his product until that black swan event occurred. And then every cockpit in the world became locked. Right. So that's the thing that makes me nervous. We just saw it. Right. When COVID. We, in March of 20, COVID caused the market to explode. And I always tell people like the market, it's not that the market goes, it, the market doesn't like unknown. If the market knows the enemy that it's facing, it's okay, right? It'll go up even if things are going bad. Yeah. Um, and people are like, well, why is that? Because the market knows what it's up against. It's that unknown stuff that when the market has that happen, like COVID, bad news. So yeah. And that, that, that was kind of, it, there's so much going on. I mean, I would love to say that America as a superpower is at the top of our game, but realistically, it's it's a big pie, right? And yep. it's a big economic pie. Yep. And we are no longer concerning on or concentrating on growing that pie and keeping the money in that pie. We're kind of like worried so much on the little berries inside the pie that we're ignoring the fact that we no longer produce anything. Yeah. We barely export that much shit. Like it's it's financially we're it's a little scary. Yeah. But well to to kind of tie it back into the investing and action items, like that's something people need to understand too, is that it is a global economy. And so just because something's going on in the US from a negative standpoint, does not mean that the rest of the world is is doing well. Like there's a very neat chart. I'm a, I'm a visuals guy. So JP Morgan Asset Management puts out this thing called Guide to the Markets. And it's basically like a PDF flip book that you can just, they have, 
glorious chart after chart after chart. For nerds like me, I just eat that shit up. Well, they have one. It's really neat. It's a heat map. And basically, it just shows month by month or quarter by quarter, depending on the heat map of all these different countries. And it will show like, you know, if it's green, you know, orange, red, yellow. And it's really interesting because you can just watch these things transition over time where it's like, okay, here was the U.S. was green. Then it went to orange, you know, then yellow, then red. And then you have Spain who's already in the red. And by the time we get to the red, they're now in the green. So it's like, it's a global economy. So investors need to know, don't focus just on the US. If if shit's going bad in the US, there's probably still good things happening around the world too. Okay, let me see if I got anything else to wrap into for our last three minutes. Are you, okay. Dave Ramsey versus Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Okay. All day. Um, Ramsey's good. I always liked Dave Ramsey's books, but Rich Dad, Poor Dad to me was, that was a game changer when I was, you know, probably and, 15 years ago for and, me. And the, the core is more of a budgeting. So the core of the Definitely, core of that yeah. argument is no debt versus intelligent use of debt. Correct. Right. Basically is, is you're not buying shit until you have enough um, investments that they're paying for the random shit that you want to buy. Right. It, it, but you're borrowing it, money. At its core. Yeah. Well, and it, it, it goes back to discipline, right? And it's the idea you have to know thine self. If you're not a disciplined person, when cookies are in front of you, don't buy cookies. Some people can have cookies in front of them. They're not going to touch them, you know? So I think if you're that disciplined person, then rich dad, poor dad is probably the direction you end up tracking. If you're not, than Dave Ramsey all day long because it is it's all about the baby steps and and smart budgeting and things like that. Um, so I have down for like tax saving tips for personal people like health health savings accounts Definitely. or is there anything else that you can think of? I mean, there's HSAs are great. The problem is is that not a lot of places are really offering those. I mean, they're getting more popular. But you have to have a very specific style of healthcare plan in order to be able to take advantage of those. The nice thing is you can keep using those year in and year out, you know, and it ends up being, you know, basically tax deductible, tax deferred, and then tax free coming out for medical. It's not often you get that triple tax combination. Um, Pre-tax money into the 401k, obviously. Um, I think there's a lot of people that, you know, if you, it's hard if you work for a company and it's, you know, you and your spouse or, or it's just you and you're a W-2 employee, there's really not a ton of things you can do out there. The people that really can take advantage of it are the self-employed. And those are the ones to me that I see a lot of money left on the table from a tax standpoint because maybe they're, you know, they're just paid on a 1099 as opposed to like actually structuring their company and spending a little bit of money to you know, create an LLC and, and pay themselves as a W-2 employee off of that, uh, that can be a huge tax savings. But again, if you're just a W-2 employee, you don't really have that option. If you're a W-2 employee, but with, uh, you know, kind of uh, some of the rules I've seen, you know, that they've posted with success. I, I guess something that I've always done in my life is you always have a side hustle. Yep. Your side hustle is your LLC. There's quite a bit of tax breaks that come with that. For sure. So... 
Yeah, well, and it, inside know. your LLC, you could be a W-2 employee inside your LLC, pay yourself, and then in situations like we just saw with COVID, you could have legitimately filed for an SBA forgiven, you know, PPP loan yep. for your, the money that you've paid yourself for the last year. Right. Oh. Now, I know a bunch of shitty companies that filed for those damn things, got them all, you know, got them all, what is it, the word, the R word they used, whatever. They, they got the free money and their businesses were up. Yeah. Like, right. that's bullshit. Yeah. There's got to be some way for the government to come back at that, but they won't. They won't. Right. I mean, it was, that was, uh, you know, it stopped the bleeding in any way possible and we'll figure it all out later. Yep. Right. So yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of shenanigans with that, but I mean, that's, that's one option. The side hustle thing is a great idea that the challenge always though, too, is you can't do anything beyond the income. Right. So it's not like you can cross over and, and via the LLC help have a bunch of savings because of your W two job, right. That income is treated differently. Yeah. Um, so they've made it very hard. You know, there used to be a lot of great ways for retirees, especially um, to do things, uh, you know, but they've closed a lot of these loopholes. Everything from like the IRA distributions you used to be able to take an IRA and distribute it over the course of the rest of your life. You know, once yeah. you've inherited it from somebody else. Now the rules are 10 years. You got to have it all out in 10. So it's like every year they're coming up with more and more ways to make it difficult for people to really do much from a tax standpoint government's got to get their cheese they man they do you got to get you got to get some and i know that's why everybody's always angry at the rich and it's like well a lot of times it's because the quote-unquote rich are also the ones who are self-employed they can use the tax code to their advantage uh, you know because they have companies uh people don't want to admit yeah. that but it is what it is for all you guys out there that are not self-employed yeah at the end of the year, take a fucking check out of your checkbook and write that check for the amount of your total federal deductions on your last pay stub. So when you look at your last pay stub, whatever that total federal withholding was, just write that check. Just feel the pain of writing out a fucking $10,000 check or a $12,000 check. You're yeah. going to crumple it up. You're going to rip it up. You're going to burn it. But just feel the pain of like, oh, if I had to actually pay this instead of Uncle Sam knowing that if they take it out every month, I'm totally going to be ignorant to it. No, because that's a pro that's one of the biggest problems is we're totally okay with more government and more government and more government because we don't see the amount that we have to fucking pay for it. First thing. Second right. thing, federal income tax was only supposed to be to pay for World War One or World <laughs> War Two, and then it was supposed to go away. What happened to that? <laughs> that's not that's not going away anytime soon. It's every there everything's gonna get taxed and that that's that's what we have to do. They to tax pay for when you make it, country. they tax when you spend it, and then they tax when you fucking die. Yeah. No. Yep. They do. All I right. Mean, you just gotta, you know, I think I think you have to be diligent about what you're paying in taxes and understand that too. What, what's driving me nuts is, it's always driven me nuts, but people get a massive tax refund, right? You know, at the end of the, you know, at tax time. And it's like, God damn, that was just such a nice loan for the government for all that time. You could have kept that in your own pocket. And I get why people do it for some reasons, but where I think a lot of people are going to get screwed this year is that it's the child... I think it's the child tax credit oh, yeah. where you, you're used to get 3000 bucks a kid or whatever. Yeah, and now yeah, you're getting yeah, paid month choice to month. Then, yeah. yeah. I get paid for it. Yeah. So, so now it's... they send you, right. So now yep. starting in June or July, everybody's getting July, that yep. in advance. Well, what a lot of people don't realize is 
part of the reason why you got a big ass refund every year is because of your child tax credit that was applied. So this year, when you don't get a refund or you owe in or your refund that's usually four grand is now $400, that's why. They're giving you this as an advance on that credit. And yep. I don't think anybody gets that. And I think you are gonna have a lot of people walk into our firm who are gonna end up saying, uh, why is my refund so low? And we're going to have to explain to these people over and over and over. So that's yeah. that's one that's making me nervous. And I wouldn't doubt that they keep this going into 2022. Oh, yeah. And with it going into 2022, it's going to be the entire thing. Sure. This year, it's only half. Sure. So if you have two kids, 6000 bucks, it's you're getting 3000 paid you know, in a six month period, yeah. and then you're going to get 3000 back on your taxes. Next year, it's going to be all 6000 paid. 500 a month or yeah. whatever the fucking number is. I don't know if those are the right numbers, but all right, cool, man. I think we gave a ton of awesome yeah. info Good. and I got a little more respect for you. Hey, that's we awesome. go back a few years. So <laughs> did you want to ask if Asians are better at finance now? <laughs> no, I'll leave that to the last podcast. <laughs> oh, okay. Sounds it's good. just that Mike is uh, he's, yeah. he's a chair force guy. So that's right. Oh. I always thought his, uh, his financial skills are just for the fact that you guys trained in sharpening pencils and, <laughs> And how fast can you uh, use that's a right. calc or that's what? That's right. Okay. Yep. I'm, I'm good at Paper all that filing. stuff. Paper filing? Yeah. All so. right. That's a wrap. Thank you very much, Mike. All right. All thanks, right. guys. See it's been you. fun.